0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: Hello, welcome to The Rest is History and uh, our second episode on oil the history of oil, the way that it's shaped um, geopolitics over the past century and more, with the brilliant Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge. So in the last episode, Dominic was talking about oil as a curse. Uh, And that is quite a standard perspective that for lots of countries, the possession of oil has distorted their politics uh, and has, has proven bad for the people who have that oil. Do you think that's true? Do you think oil the presence of oil in the country, that there is a, a kind of link often to the
2: repressive regimes that it tends to generate? Well, I think the really interesting case here is the United States. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> the United States, you know, for you know, a period of time, in the, as I said, at the end of the 19th century, and then again, in the post Second World War period, probably actually in the, 19, in the 1930s as well, uh, is the world's largest oil um, producer. And as we know, it's now again, you know, now in speaking this year, 2022, it's back to being the world's largest oil producer. It has been for a few years now, um, thanks to the the shale boom, the and fracking, and all that. Yeah, obviously, the American state and American politics doesn't really look like any Arab country's state and politics. It doesn't look like, um, mm-hmm. sorry, Russia or the Soviet Union. It doesn't look like Mexico's for um, that matter either. And yet I still think that there's more to the story of American democratic politics through the course of the 20th century than can be understood without seeing the impact that the United States oil production had. And i just give one example for that, which is the, the way in which Texas became such an important state. And so you know, in 1930 the East Texan oil field was discovered um, by a wildcat, a driller. Um, and at that point it was the largest oil field that had ever been discovered anywhere um, in the world Uh, and what we see from the through the 1930s is the rise of Texas's influence uh, in American politics you know these big figures in Congress culminating obviously in Lyndon Johnson who senate majority leader and then went on to become president after after Kennedy's assassination and you might say as well um, that the ways in which American politics shifted westward uh, as the New Deal era came to an end is bound up with that rise of Texas, if we pushed it a bit further than just the, the Johnson era. Even in a country like the United States, oil, where the whole economy isn't running on oil, the whole of the state's finances isn't running on oil, it's still shaping the question of who has political influence in a country's politics.
0: And even beyond that, uh, Helen, I mean, oil, you know, in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, oil lobbyists played an enormous role Mm. in Washington. I mean, probably unrivaled by any other single lobby group. So you could argue that not uh, even getting apart from the sort of the demographic expansion of Texas or its political, you know, obvious political role, the oil money plays a massively distorting part in, in American politics.
2: I mean, the interesting cases is, though, in 2016, just to skip on to that, is where you have uh, the, the, the oil industry, the oil and gas industry, throwing huge amounts of money at a single candidate, um, Jeb Bush, to get the, yeah. you know, the Republican nomination, you know, the best financed presidential candidate there's ever been in terms of running for a, a nomination. And, he, you know, he doesn't get anywhere. He, he, I think, he, isn't it the highest he comes third in one of the primaries? Well, he's he's low energy, ironically, isn't he? That's what <laughs> Trump called him.
1: I very stupidly forgot to print off the questions, which is why don has oh, been asking us, all the questions. Sure. But I do remember um, there was a question on Twitter with which you engaged about Dallas, mm. which was uh, probably the most famous TV um, soap opera in the world in the 70s and revolved around um, a, a Texas oil family. Um, and the most notorious figure in that was J.R. Ewing who was the kind of archetype of a, an American corporate baddie? Do, do you think that there's a? I mean, I don't want to um, oversimplify, but I'm going to um, a, a sense that oil made the United States in its dealing with the
2: broader world a kind of geopolitical
1: J.R. Ewing.
2: Uh, I'm quite happy to talk about Dallas. <laughs> I think that the the, the, the the Dallas is a really interesting phenomenon uh, because you know the things that. People, you know, those of us who watched it remember about it. Most are obviously the big things like, you know, like who shot Jr. Um, but actually, a lot of it, you go back and look at it, a, bit, a lot of it is actually about oil. They really are oil stories that are running through um, most Dallas um, um, episodes. And I think what's interesting is, is that in some sense that Jr. represents what is necessary for the United States to do. Mm. At the point of the end of the 1970s, and interestingly, you know, his father Jock Ewing, that you know, the patriarch of the the family. You now, his he 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 represents, I think, in the in the Dallas mythology, if you you, you like, um, old American oil independence. So he's you know, George
1: he, W. Bush.
2: <laughs> he's As a, J R
1: Ewing would be. He's a
2: wildcatter driller in the in that East Texan oil field, and that's where uh, he's made his money. And the thing about these these guys is is that they were just taking the chance the big oil companies were not interested in the in the east texas oil field um, to begin with they 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 were just people at the um, as the depression had already you know like taken hold who were who were getting some land from one of the ranches and and um, trying their luck um, drilling um, on it and that's what jock Ewing you know like represents but if you think when by the time the series starts as i recall is he's retired the company's been handed over to J.R., uh, and he's very keen. Jr. always going on about how um, the independents, meaning not the big oil companies, and there's a really crucial episode in which Jr. basically mortgages south uh, which is uh, their
1: ranch, which they? is
2: the ranch, and uh, which has been in, the, in um, his mother's family for generations. Then he's done that in order to um, finance some wells in Southeast Asia. So, um, you know, America has to, JR's turning abroad to try and find oil um, for Ewing Oil, which is in crisis um, because basically um, Cliff Barnes has got the, um, he's running the, something called the, the, I think it's called the Office of Land Management in Texas. And he's basically closed down Ewing Oil, being able to produce in, in Texas. So JR's chasing off oil on the other side of the world. He thinks this is going to save, save, save the company then um, flooding happens or something at the uh, in, in, in the oil wells, and then the mortgage comes due on, on um, South Fork. And there's this moment, there's this great episode, it's the best Dallas episode, I think, um, in which basically Miss Ellie, who owns um, South Fork, it's her family's you know thing, has basically to allow drilling on South Fork in order to save Ewing oil. And I think that this episode goes out in the aftermath of... Um, jimmy carter's malay speech where he's basically saying look we need to make sacrifices we need to consume less but actually what's going on in dallas in this episode is basically saying no well we have to make sacrifices but we have to give something up that's sacred because we need to produce more oil and in a way it's all framed as kind of like miss ellie making this noble sacrifice because ewing oil must survive but actually really in some sense what's saving the day is is that jr is financing um Cliff Barnes running for office, so that he will leave the office of land management, and Ewing Oil will no longer be controlled or constrained. So I think that Jr. is is kind of like doing the unpalatable things all the time to uh, that are necessary um, for America in, in the symbolism Ewing Oil to survive in this world in which. America is not the, uh, the the world's largest oil producing yeah, country. Cause and
0: uh, America America loses its kind of oil self sufficiency, doesn't it? In the seventies, and that's the context for Carter's Malay speech. Absolutely, yeah.
2: And uh, that that is the context. I mean, Dallas starts, I think, in like nineteen um, it, seventy eight. Um, it's either seventy seven or um seventy or or, or, or seventy eight. It's it's starting as all these. You know, there's an energy crisis going on in the um, United States. Um, it's providing, I think, some commentary. Um. on that um problem and and i say jock Ewing, you know the the patriarch of the family uh, who who's done it in the old american way that's gone that doesn't work any longer in some sense jr's now necessary
0: and then if we fast forward back well actually if we rewind back to what we were talking about a second ago which was about the gulf wars um now i i would imagine that there's a proportion of our listeners who will say sort of automatically well those wars were both really about oil. So ninety one, um, the 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 liberation of Kuwait, and then two thousand and three, the uh, George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq. Um, how much, Helen, do you think they were just about oil?
2: Well, I think the first one's quite straightforward. I mean, there's no um, there's no pretense offered by George Bush, senior, in explaining why the United States is going to war that denies. That what's at interest, sorry, what's at stake is, is American Western oil um, interest. That it would be a disaster um, for Saddam Hussein to control the the oil fields um, in Kuwait. I think the second one is obviously a lot more is is, is a lot more difficult. I think there was a, a view at the time um, that was articulated, particularly obviously, uh, well, well, actually not just on the left, um, which said that George Bush Jr. administration was pursuing this war for the interests of the oil companies uh, and you know, stressed the relationship of Dick Cheney, his vice president, um, to the oil um, business. I don't think that that's right. I think, though, the, we do need to see that there is an oil context to the war, whether it provides decisive motivations over other things. I, 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 I don't know, and I'm not particularly sure it's that important. But I think that what we can see is is that the Bush administration, when it comes in, has a sense that America's got a growing problem. Um, uh, it partly, I think, thinks it's got a growing problem because it can see that as China develops economically, that China's going to want to use a lot more oil than it was doing in the 1990s. And China had stopped being self-sufficient in oil from 1993. And there's also a sense in which some of the world's largest oil fields are ageing by the 2000s. And when the Bush administration comes in, there are three big or three significant oil producers that are under sanctions for one reason or another, Iran, Iraq and Libya. And it's certainly the case that Dick Cheney in particular had a sense that that was untenable, that they couldn't carry on with having sanctions on all three of these countries and restricting um, production. So I I think that there's clearly an oil rationale for the second Gulf War, which is to say, if we can get a, a different government in place in Baghdad, if we can get one that's friendly to Western um, interests, um, then we'll be able to remove the sanctions off Iraq, um, and we'll be able to encourage more production in Iraq, including allowing investment opportunities for um, the, the Western um, oil um, companies. Obviously, that part of it doesn't doesn't actually um, work out, but um. I'm quite prepared to say that oil is a, a very serious consideration um, in the second Iraq war.
1: But it's not just about oil.
2: If we go back to the first Gulf War uh, and its aftermath uh, and the fact that it involves these no fly operations, it involves militarily policing the Gulf to stop Iraqi oil getting out because of the, the, the sanction regime – I think it's fair to say that actually the the military side of containing Iraq that way had become quite difficult. And the French had pulled out of it um, by the time that the Bush administration um, came into um, office. So the status quo militarily, I think, had reached its, it exhausted itself or is at least becoming more, more difficult. Uh, And so an alternative was being sought, I think, on that side as well as on the oil side. So Helen, we, we talked about the um, the strain
1: of hypocrisy that oil has fostered in American policy. Could we look now at Europe, mm. which, I mean, you say, for the large European states bereft of domestic oil, the failed bids for energy independence constituted a perhaps decisive part of how European-dominated Eurasia came to an end. So what that meant was, I suppose, first of all, that in recent times, actually Europe you know, has been dependent on America's attempts to keep the oil flowing, even though, Europeans may kind of object to it on moral grounds. They still benefit from it uh, in economic grounds. The other thing that's happened in Europe, far more than in America, is a pursuit of alternative energy sources. Um, and the anxiety about uh, global warming in policy terms seems to to have been felt much more strongly in Europe than in America. And presumably that's because in America that option to... Um, sink oil wells into South Fork to frack to kind of develop national parks and smash it up to get oil out is an option in a way that it isn't in Europe do you think that would be fair so there's a measure there's a you know the lack of oil in in Europe has made hypocrites of us as well
2: yeah I do I I do think that um I think there was an understanding actually uh, particularly in Germany earlier than perhaps than, than than elsewhere in europe that oil was going to run into difficulties of the kinds in which we've seen perhaps we're beginning to see pretty clearly um at the moment and that there were issues with not only foreign dependency and not only the environmental consequences of the the production of oil but the the straightforward future supply of oil so the same kind of things that were concerning the bush administration in the early 2000s about the future supply of oil i think were Concerning the German government in the and in the 1990s, yeah, in the 1990s,
0: <laughs> yeah. So this is a whole other dimension, right? Which is that the Germany, obviously. I mean, this is incredibly controversial.
1: Well, actually, we'll
0: get onto Germany in a second. Let's 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 put the Nord Stream pipelines yeah. on a shelf and and dust them down <laughs> to the delight of our German listeners. <laughs> so the the, the 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 push for sustainability and for alternative sources of, of energy, Helen. I mean, do you see that going anywhere ultimately in Europe?
2: Yes and no. I mean, clearly one of the reasons why european countries uh, have been so concerned about alternative energy is because fossil fuel energy after the age of coal has been so problematic for them actually in italy's case the age of coal was problematic because they didn't have any yeah so i think that partly is you've talked about this enough times in your podcast human motivation is pretty complicated about any number of of, of things and i think that Part of the reason why Europeans have always taken alternative, or for a long time now, have taken alternative energy more seriously than often the case in the United States, is is because they have understood the the geopolitical problems that are caused for um, Europe um, in a time in which oil and gas are the most important um, energy um, sources. So of course you would like leaving the climate motives aside, of course you would be hoping that there was a future. In which alternative energies would do the same thing, and Europe would be in a much less disadvantageous position than it's been um, during the time of um, oil um, and um, gas. And I think go back to Tom's point is is yeah is is that there's been a certain inclination, I think, amongst many of us in in Europe, to sort of to be morally disapproving uh, of the way in which Americans produce oil, talk about it. Et cetera whilst at the same time benefiting from it. I don't think that many people, whatever that actually in, in, in Europe or indeed anywhere else for that matter, whatever they might morally object to in fracking and, and shale oil actually would have liked to have lived in the world of the 2010s economically if the shale oil boom hadn't taken place because we would then have been living in already be living in an era of you know permanently high um, oil prices that would have made economic growth very difficult. And mm. I think that there's a, a quite strong inclination to turn away from those um, realities because they're not very, they're not very palatable um, yeah. um, to look at.
0: Now, Tom mentioned Gerhard Schroeder. I, I won't say Gerhard Schroeder is a friend of the show. He's absolutely not. <laughs> uh, <and> we first <laughs> shyster. I, yeah, think, I the, think we, well, he's <laughs> Audi, He was Audi man, wasn't he? Because of his number of marriages. And then he became Olympic man um, because of the number of ring Lord of the rings, they call him in Germany, but also now he's obviously a, a, the sort of the poster boy for what's perceived as western appeasement western um uh hypocrisy and sort of willful blindness towards vladimir putin's russia now how much do you think helen that our our european anxiety about energy about dependence upon oil distorted our dealings with russia since let's say um the war in Georgia or the occupation of Crimea.
2: First of all, I think there is, to be fair to the European Union and to be fair to Britain actually uh, as well, because for part of part of this story it was a member of the, the European Union. I think you can see going back to around 2000, so you know where Putin's scarcely been in power. Obviously, uh, at that point, you know a concern uh, about Europe's Russian gas dependency, uh, in particular. Um, which is obviously more um, sort of entrenched because at that point pretty much all gas was coming through pipelines. And
0: it's going through Ukraine, right? The Russian yeah, gas going, going through, through yeah,
2: going through Ukraine. And so I think that the, 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 that that you know, that particularly actually the European Commission at times spent quite a lot of time trying to find alternatives. You know, and I mean, the problem is is that if you say, well, what were the alternatives for European? External gas import, so not the stuff that was coming, not the gas that was already coming in produced in Europe in the North Sea. You were talking really about Azerbaijan and Iran. Um, obviously, Iran's its own kind of problem where morality of uh, its regime is concerned, and the Azerbaijani, um, or the oil from, sorry, the gas from Azerbaijan, complicated pipeline had got, got, got to be constructed for that, and there's lots of politics around the, the gas in um, Azerbaijan. Um, John. So I don't think that in general, there was a, an indifference to this question. There was just a difficulty actually implementing uh, mm. alternatives. I, I haven't I, said that. I think the German situation with Schroeder is a bit different because this wasn't just a question of like buying Russian gas. It was a question of like which pipelines Russian gas was coming through. And until that point in late 2005 where his government in its final weeks in office made the decision um to uh, agree the first Nord Stream pipeline um with um, russia that gas those guys gas pipelines were coming through um ukraine so when truda did that I don't think he was actually blind to what the strategic ramifications of that were, were in terms of putting a pipeline under the Baltic Sea that would, in time, from Putin's point of view, be a first move to cutting Ukraine out completely of the export of gas into northern um, Europe. He was just indifferent, and partly he was indifferent, um, because he was very soon after he left office going to materially to <laughs> yeah. benefit Yeah. yeah. Um am it. i right
1: that the the polish government compared it to the the nazi the then, soviet yeah then
2: the, the then um, polish foreign minister said it compared it to the the nazi soviet pact because obviously part of the nazi soviet pact was carving up western ukraine and handing it over to the the soviet union in 1939 okay we'll take a quick break there
1: um go
2: and refill your
1: tanks if you can afford it um and we will see you in a minute Hello and welcome back to The Rest is History. Helen, one of the really striking things about reading your book, um, and especially in the current context, is just how important Ukraine is. I mean, you you keep talking about Ukraine and obviously you wrote this It's well before um, Putin invaded Ukraine. But in terms of
2: oil politics, what is the role of Ukraine? Okay, well, where oil is concerned is is the pipeline actually goes back to the aftermath of Syria? When the West European um, governments are... Or turning um to soviet oil i should say the the italians have already been interested in it before the the the, the, the Suez um crisis obviously for that oil actually to be transported into um into europe it, it's got to come either by sea or it's got to come by um by pipeline uh was options with oil which they weren't then with um later with Um, gas immediately anyway what happens in the early 60s is this this pipeline that's called um, one of its names anyway it has multiple names it's called the friendship pipeline which says something in its (laughs) name when this is the you know the height of the cold war or one part of the cold war anyway not too far off the cuban missile crisis time um this pipeline is built and the kennedy administration is very very unhappy about the building of this friendship um pipeline and, and, and wants sanctions against the companies that are involved in um, b- building it and a ban on the uh, export of certain materials that are necessary uh, in order to um, build it. But the the West Europeans are pretty adamant about it and that they stand their ground against the Americans and this is the first of the battles that take place There's going to be replicated you know in the last 10 years or so over the Nord Stream um, pipeline. This is the first of the battles over the pipelines between European countries and the United States, where the United States wants to say, we don't want you to be doing um, this. But this pipeline, when it, it is built, uh, it starts operating, I think, in 1964, uh, and it goes through Ukraine and Belarus. And it is still the principal pipeline by which oil um, comes from Russia um, into into Europe. The gas pipelines are different. The gas pipelines are built um, later later. Uh, and it's the gas pipelines that Putin has been most interested in making redundant by not only putting pipelines that go under the Baltic Sea, so Nord Stream 1 and then the Nord Stream 2 one that was built but never looks like it's never now going to be used, but also pipelines that go under the Black Sea um, to take um, gas into in, into southern Europe. And about a year after the, the Crimea crisis, it was 2015, I think this right when um putin had his agreement to build a, a, a pipeline that goes under the black sea called turkstream the first turkstream um, pipeline he basically had Gazprom write right to the european commission and saying once this is finished once turkstream is finished no no gas whatsoever will be coming into into europe via via ukraine you will you will have to use these the the these sea routes
0: and do you think now so you said about um Nord Stream 2 being Nord Stream 2 has been cancelled. You know, people lost their jobs. It appears to be definitively over. And that's an extraordinary change, given that, what, a, a, a year ago, um, all the sort of prognostications were about a future sort of, you know, Russia and Germany becoming ever more entangled in their kind of foreign policy because of their, their sort of mutual dependence. I mean, do you think that what's happened in the last few weeks therefore represents a seismic moment in terms of Germany's sense of its energy security, europe's sense of its energy security or do you do you i mean i know it's important. we're not soothsayers and we don't have crystal balls so we don't know how it's going to play out but is it possible that that russo-german relationship could be revived in five or ten years
2: i think there's two things at the moment they're pulling in the exact opposite direction the first of them is that 50 years of not just german energy policy but german foreign policy is shattered you know, in the last few weeks because it wasn't just that that Germany embraced the pipelines and the gas pipelines um, in particular. But I think it's fair to say that in the seventies, that that energy relationship with Russia was the material foundation of Ostpolitik of, yeah. of West Germany's then turn to an accommodation um, with Russia. So with the Soviet union in the hope that in the end, that that would create a context in which the reunification of Germany one day could take place. And that energy, Relationship then survived into the um, the post Cold War world, and I think you could say that Ostpolitik in a there was a post Cold War version of Ostpolitik in the way in which there was a seventies and eighties um, version of it. And when um, the German chancellors turn around, turning around and saying, "Actually, we need to break our dependency upon Russian energy," that's a, a seismic um, moment. On the other hand. Every every day that's gone on since the invasion of Ukraine um, Germany's been buying gas from Russia that's mm. coming down amongst other pipelines, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline uh, and there's no evidence I think that that is going to change anytime soon. So I think what we can see with the announcement that Schultz made that Germany will build two liquid natural gas ports is that we should expect to see a competition between American producers and Russia over the German gas market mm. over the next decade or so, which it kind of ironically kind of reconstructs that competition between the Americans and Russians over European markets about oil at the beginning of the the, the 20th century but I'm not sure we should necessarily bet on the Russians losing that um not least because china's extraordinarily high demand now for gas, which went, you know, accelerated through 2021, means that there's extremely fierce competition for liquid natural gas imports. And Helen, imports. do you th- I mean, with
1: China, obviously that's, we haven't really talked about China, but its explosive economic growth over the past few decades has obviously been a massive additional factor in the geopolitics of oil. Do you think that um, that Russia may end up in an increasingly subordinate role to China, um, particularly if China comes to Russia's rescue in its current crisis, what impact that might have on oil consumption from Russia and the world more generally?
2: I think that the fact that Putin is overreached does strengthen China's overall position in its relationship with, um, with Russia. I think, though, that we shouldn't get too quickly to the view that Russia's doomed itself in energy terms and economically by what it's done. However,
1: because it has the gas and oil quite rightly,
2: morally, of course we are by what is um, happening because Asia matters at least as much, if not more uh, in the energy future than Europe. Um, And I don't think there's any evidence whatsoever so far that either China or India is going to turn away from russian energy and indeed i think there's you know like evidence even in the last 48 hours or so that um that that india has actually been increasing the amount of oil that it's buying from from russia in a world in which russia was economically very dependent upon europe which was true of that world that brought the soviet union to an end that world doesn't exist anymore because asian economic development is of the two big countries, China and India, is at such a level um, that their demand for energy uh, is as important as anybody else's, certainly of Europe's um, demand for energy. I think that we will see Russia really trying to entrench its energy relationship with those um, countries and might be willing to let go some of it in at least some parts of Europe, whether it really would let go of competing in germany i think maybe competing for the market in germany maybe maybe another matter um but if oil and gas really matter geopolitically then nothing's actually really changed in energy geopolitical terms by what's happened in the in the last few weeks i mean is is that what putin has done is militarily pushed russia too far Mm -hmm. um by the looks of it but I don't think that that, you can just read off from that and say, well, he's destroyed the entire basis of Russian geopolitical power. I don't quite see that.
0: So if you see this sort of continuity, um, I mean, I personally completely agree with you. I think these deep continuities are not deflected by even, even individual wars or defeats in wars. But that... Runs against something that I think a lot of our listeners will be thinking about, which is um, global, which is the climate crisis yeah. and the need to get away from gas and oil. Because the implication of what you're saying is that gas and oil will still be absolutely central factors in world politics for the rest of our lifetimes, which I think they will. Um, but for example, you know, Hugh George has a question: Given the cult, the current culture and of climate change, does oil count as immoral now? do you think there has been a, a a cultural shift against the sort of the politics of oil the world of oil or do you think reality dictates that we'll still be dependent on it you know for the rest of the time we're on this earth
2: i think that there there obviously is a, a widespread moral revulsion against what using fossil fuels um means that moral revulsion i think can coexist um with an ignorance about our material dependency upon these energy sources in the present moment. And and it goes back to the fact that, as I said earlier, I don't think lots of people find thinking about that very palatable. Uh, They don't want actually to understand um, just how ethically burdensome um, the energy sources on which our way, way of life depends are. I think it's also the case that there are good reasons, leaving the climate crisis aside, why... Lots of countries would like to get away from using at least as much oil and gas, and that is is that the the geopolitics around them, as we've been discussing, you know, are pretty destructive and uh, worse than dysfunctional um, at best. And where the supply of oil is concerned, I think we can see that you know there are significant constraints in its future um, supply, um, and that 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 would lead to higher prices makes economic growth um, more um, difficult. I think where we're heading is a world in which an energy, some form of energy transition will take place, but that will mean that actually more and more green energy is used without that meaning that less and less fossil fuel energy is used.
1: Because our growth will just keep going up. Yeah, up. that
2: we'll actually be living in a, in a, in a more of a multi-energy world. Uh, and that until, unless and until a decisive breakthrough, technological breakthrough on storage um, for solar and wind um, takes place, that would make it possible to electrify many things that are presently done via um, oil. That that that's where we're going to be, and that means that the the old geopolitics of what we've been spending our time talking about um, today, and a new geopolitics around green energy, and particular China's advantageous position in relation to green energy, uh, are going to coexist with each other. So we're going to have an even more geopolitically complicated world because we're going to have the old geopolitics and the new geopolitics happening at the same time.
1: So when you say China's advantageous position with green policy, because it's te- more technologically advanced, you mean?
2: Well, it's two things at the moment. Well, several things. Is is first of all, is that China dominates, you know, various bits of manufacturing that are crucial to green energy, solar panels, you know, in in particular. Mm-hmm. It's not a coincidence that one of the first two um, products that Trump slapped tariffs on China and when he began his trade war with China, one was washing machines and the other was solar panels. Um, the second is is that at the moment, China just completely dominates both the production. Uh, uh, and the supply chains um, around the metals that are necessary for green energy infrastructure and batteries um, and that in terms of the distribution of rare earth metals in the earth, it looks like china's in a pretty privileged position now that doesn't mean that you know like mass mining operation large scale mining operations elsewhere aren 't going to find these metals and it looks like the United States is pretty committed to going down that um route but no one has no country on earth it would seem has for them in terms of known distribution of these necessary metals so they're not likely China to be
1: found in they're not likely to be found in dorset
2: <laughs> who knows tom you know, or even in wiltshire maybe um well that's, green and pleasant that,
0: land. <laughs> that was the question i was going to ask so to be parochial for a second where is britain placed in this because there's obviously lots more in your book that we haven't talked about you talk about monetary policy you talk about um About indebtedness, you talk about currencies, and you also talk about democracy, and you Mm. talk a bit about Brexit. And I just want, for the rest, if we look forward in the rest of the twenty first century, where does Britain fit into this kind of geopolitics of energy? Do you think, or are we just part of Western Europe?
2: I think that we can see that by the middle of the two thousand and tens that there was a sense in which, and in in the Cameron government um, had it, and it's continued since that Britain has to have a more active position in the Middle East. That, in some sense. You know, perhaps symbolically, the East of Suez retreat was over and we're going back to having some attempt to have some capacity to act militarily in the Middle East and independently uh, of the um, Americans. I think that in terms of the issues around Russian energy, we are in a different position um, than the other big EU countries, obviously, particularly Germany. We just were less dependent in part, that was a, a consequence of of North Sea oil and gas, um, which you know is not something that that, that Germany or France um, particularly benefited um, from. And also because once the American shale gas boom um, started, then we embraced liquid natural gas imports. In fact, we kind of had before. I think from I, I, the, the first first liquid natural gas ports have been built earlier than that um, in in Britain. Including taking imports from Qatar, and um, that way. Now, Britain isn't, isn't the only European country that uh, has a, a significant liquid natural gas capacity for importing. Spain um, does too, but it does distinguishes, I think, from the from at least the German um, position. I think you know the big hope, and you can see. This and the way in which Boris Johnson talks about this is wind, offshore wind. I mean, he's quite Boris Johnson's quite keen on talking about, um, you know, Britain being the Saudi Arabia of of offshore. He loves a big wind. scheme, doesn't <laughs> yeah. he? He loves a big scheme. <laughs> and so, um, obviously, where sun's concerned, we're in a not so good, uh, a less yeah. propitious um, position. But we do live in one of the windiest places, um, probably um, in in the world. I think that the the political question, leaving aside the high energy cost political question that's coming will be about fracking in in the United Kingdom um, and about whether the present essentially anti-fracking position that British governments have taken is going to come to an end now it should be said that you can have lots of hopes uh, that fracking will yield you know a lot of gas or um, oil and they turn out not i mean there was a point in the 2010s where poland was the great hope um for um shale gas and it turned out that you know the, the fracturing the rocks in, in in poland didn't work out the same way as fracturing the rocks you know like in north in, in north dakota so just the 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 possibility um that oil and, and gas can be extracted that way doesn't mean that actually it will turn out in practice i mean you've only got to look at the history of some of the big huge oil drills that turn out absolutely for there to be to be nothing there there's a famous one in um alaska i think it's called mock luck um where when they when they, they spent billions on this uh and uh, and then when they when they got there when they when they found where the oil should have been it had moved and they oh. basically said that they were 30 million years too late <laughs>
1: That's quite late. <laughs> okay, that's that's not good. But do you think, I mean, do you think um, that the strains that uh, certainly, you know, the European economy and the global economy more generally, I guess, that, that, that suffering at the moment, that it will inhibit the drive to net zero, that it will be make me net zero, but not yet?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, the thing is, is that I think there's, as I say, there's two different things going on here is, is there's a set of issues around the energy transition uh, and particularly the idea that net zero can be done by 2050, which rests on assumptions about technology that doesn't exist um, yet. And so I think that there will be a, a pushback against net zero as it becomes clear how difficult using much higher levels of, of green energy um, is. And then there's this what I would call this fossil fuel energy crisis crisis going on that's being driven by its own dynamics and isn't being caused by the attempts at the energy transition despite the fact that some kind of some some people particularly you know like on the right the kind of like farage take on it would want to sort of blame high energy prices pre-ukraine um on the green energy transition that's not right i don't think that that's right at all is is it's the dynamics of fossil fuel energy themselves mm. issues around oil and gas supply and demand that are producing the structural forces that are the structural forces that are that are pushing high pushing high energy or creating high um, energy prices so my view is is that we'll be dealing with these problems simultaneously uh, and we'll be trying to find ways of living with high fossil fuel energy prices and at the same time trying to find ways of increasing green um, energy uh, and they will into those problems will interact with each other in 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 pretty politically complicated ways fun times <laughs> <laughs> that helen thanks so much
1: um, not just uh, the history of oil but appear a into the future as well uh, and no one better qualified to give it than you and your book disorder hard times in the 21st century um, A slightly depressing title that's more than justified itself since its publication um is out now thanks so much it's a pleasure tom dominic thank you bye-bye bye